I'm told that Beethoven, the composer, not the dog, uh, liked, to, liked to play tricks on people. He was quite a character. One of his favorite tricks was when he was invited to play the piano at a salon for an evening gathering of people. He would choose a very nice, soft, and gentle song, play it very nice and softly and gently, and just when he had lulled the audience down to a sense of gentleness and softness, he would slam his forearm onto the keyboard. Everybody would jump and he would laugh at them. That's a bit what this sounds like in Luke 12. We've been going through this chapter for about a month now, and we've heard about the command to take no thought for the morrow because Jesus will take care of us. He cares for the sparrow, he'll care for you. If he clothes the lilies of the field, surely he'll provide for you. Our reading last week opened up, Fear not, little flock. Now there have been a few discordant notes here and there in chapter 12. We've had the story of the wise fool who stocks up a lot of food in his warehouse and he says, now I can eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool, this night your life will be required of you. We've had the admonition to be dressed and, and ready for when the master comes. So we've seen hints of judgment to come. But now Jesus slams his forearm on the keyboard. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, isn't the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, to be the prince of peace? Did, didn't angels sing at his birth, peace on earth? Isn't the peace of God which passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds according to both the Bible and the prayer book? Didn't Jesus come to bring peace? No, he says, but division. This conflicts with our common cultural perception of Jesus in the 21st century, or of many centuries. The gentle Jesus, meek and mild of the 19th century, comes to mind. Jesus says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Oh, come on, you might say. Everybody knows, in fact, according to a, a very recent poll, the most famous of Jesus' sayings is, love your enemies. Doesn't that mean peace? Well, no. If you have enemies, that means that you have a division and a lack of peace. Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but division. And of course it's true. He came to call together a kingdom of people who would work for peace. That's very true. But he himself says he brings division. Perhaps Jesus is less peaceful than we might anticipate. Now I hasten to point out here that Jesus doesn't contrast peace in this context with violence and war and that kind of thing. Okay. He's contrasting peace with division. In our gospel reading, we have two paragraphs. And at first, they don't seem very connected to each other. Jesus says, I came not to bring peace, but division. And then he goes on and talks about weather and time. But there's a common theme that judgment is coming, or that the division has started. Kind of like a magnet, Jesus is going to attract some people 
and repel other people. But judgment is coming, and so we must sort out our relationship with Jesus as soon as we can. At the start of our reading today, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and with it it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus says, I've come to set the earth ablaze. Like, like, like one of the angels in Revelation who throws down fire upon the earth. And not only that, but he's rather anxious to see it done. He wishes the fire were already kindled so he could cast the fire down on earth. What in the world is going on here? Why does Jesus say this? Because Jesus knows that judgment must come before his kingdom can come in glory. Why is he so anxious for judgment to come? Because he knows what follows judgment will be the coming of his kingdom. But the judgment can't come until a baptism of Jesus comes. But wait, now, what about Luke 3? Luke 12 comes after Luke 3. We've already had John the Baptist and the baptism in the River Jordan and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. What Jesus is referring to must be something else than his baptism in water. You want to say, since he just mentioned fire, it's almost like a baptism of fire. He's speaking of his own death, the separation of his body and soul, his descent into hell, his resurrection, his ascension. You see, before he becomes the judge of the world, he must bear the sins of the world. He must be judged and punished before he can bring judgment. And so he desires deeply that this happens soon. Why? So that peace can come. So that he'll reign over a peaceful and undivided, a united people. But until then, there will be division. In verse 52, for 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Someday, there'll be unity and peace as all people bow before Jesus, even at the very mention of the name of Jesus. But until then, there will be divisions over King Jesus and his claim to rule over all things. Some will be attracted, some will be repelled. Jesus says, this kingdom is not, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a great claim. Either you accept the claim or you don't. Some will be attracted, some will be repelled. Jesus gives us the example of one family here. There's apparently five members of the family, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, and a mother-in-law. I should point out that Jesus here is referring to a prophecy being fulfilled, a prophecy from the prophet Micah. Let me read, see, read this and see if it doesn't sound like pretty tough times. Here's the prophecy. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered 
as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. That means your wife's going to poison you. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Man's enemies are in his own home. A father, a mother, a son, a daughter, and a mother-in-law. Sounds to me fairly normal. Not a typical scenario you would think for a family disaster. I mean, I suppose it could provide a venue for a sitcom, but what couldn't? But the division here in this family is not over who does the dishes or which football team to support. Even within this family, Jesus will bring division. Sadly, many of us know this. Some members of our own family are divided over what to make of Jesus. And that can be very hurtful and very painful. In some cultures, it can be a personal disaster. Following Jesus can mean being disowned by the family, being shunned by the family. I know of one man from a particular culture when he said, I'm going to follow Jesus, the family held a funeral for him. In Jesus' own day, he caused constant division, disagreements about who he was and what he meant. Now notice that it's Jesus who causes the division. We're not called to stir up division and disagreement. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told to strive for peace with everyone. It's not our job to stir up trouble and division and disagreement. But it's inevitable because of who Jesus says he is. Isn't who Jesus says he is. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't give peace or that he can't send peace into a conflict and a division. But I'm saying that the claims that he makes create an automatic division. Either you're attracted or you're repelled. And if we decide to follow Jesus, we shouldn't expect things to go more smoothly for us. That's because when we follow Jesus, we have new priorities, new behaviors, new attitudes, and new values. And those priorities and behaviors and attitudes and values come into conflict with those who do not follow Jesus. And so inevitably... This will cause conflict and division. Now again, we should strive for peace. But when your priorities and behaviors and attitudes and values are different from others, there's going to be conflict and life will be uncomfortable. 
That's because there's a cost to following Jesus. And so we have a choice to go along, to get along, or to stand firm in the faith once delivered to the saints. But even more to this, to follow Jesus means something else, and that's to look with longing and expectation for the full coming of God's kingdom, for the peace and unity of the reign of Christ, the reign of King Jesus. There's a little bit of our liturgy that that celebrates that. In the 4th century, a a Saint Saint Cyril of Jerusalem said that when when you approach to receive communion, that your left hand and your right hand, your right hand forms a throne to receive your king. But someday, that longing expectation will be fulfilled and the full kingdom of God will come. But when will this kingdom of peace come in its fullness? I mean, we see it expanding today, but when will it come in its fullness? Well, in the second paragraph, Jesus tells us that we should be focused on interpreting the times. He says, when you see a cloud coming in from the west, think geography, right? A cloud forms over the Mediterranean Sea and moves over the land. It's going to bring a shower. So you say, we're going to get some rain today. And sure enough, it rains. When you feel a strong wind from the south and again, the desert, then you know you're going to go have a heat spell. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you think you can tell what's happening, but you don't even understand your own time. What was Jesus' own time? There's an occupying force, which is defiled the temple grounds. Pilate will order the murder of Jews right on the grounds of the temple. They're pretending to be ruled by a phony king with a phony heritage who claims falsely to be a Jew. The religious teachers are hypocrites. Jesus calls them a den of vipers. The priests are wealthy and arrogant and they're far more concerned about politics than about following God. But then a young prophet shows up preaching that the kingdom of God is here. He's already by this point in Luke performed miracles that show that he controls nature. He's calmed a storm on a sea. He's fed 5,000 people. He's performed miracles that show his control over disease and death. He's going around calling for repentance. Occupying force, false leaders. A guy who does miracles talking about the kingdom of God coming and to repent and be ready. And they want to talk about the weather. They talk about showers and a hot spell when they're inside the perfect storm. The Messiah is here. And they want to talk about the weather. Historically, the church has understood this passage to mean the church should always be looking at the present times. But historically, the church has not had a good track record on reading and interpreting the times. We've tended to focus on the weather and not on reading and interpreting the times that we live in. I think if we read the times that we live in We're heading for a time of crisis and hard times. I would even say hard times for Christians in America. And if you say 
yeah, I know, it's because of this list of politicians I don't like. You're talking about the weather. You're talking about stuff that changes. You like the difference between weather and climate. Look at the long-term trends. Now, of course, we need to talk about the weather. We need to pay attention to what politicians are doing. We have a civil obligations as citizens in a republic. I'm telling you, that's the weather. The climate does not look good. Now, I'm not fear-mongering. I'm not saying this will happen in my lifetime. Um, I don't know whether it will come as a part of judgment on America for its past. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus promises that tribulation and persecution will come. I'm not telling you that we're heading for a hard time. Jesus is. Sometimes people will say, you know, the church in America really doesn't understand persecution. And I think maybe we're doing something wrong then. Because Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to face tribulation and persecution. But the message here is that we have to sort out our relationship with Jesus before the crisis comes. I'm not saying it's coming even in my lifetime. I'm just saying it's coming at some point because Jesus promises it. Three things we have to do. First, we have to decide ahead of time what our commitment is. When the hard times come, will we follow Jesus or will we go along and get along? I had a conversation with a friend of a friend, an online conversation with a friend of a friend who teaches at a state university outside of Florida. And um, uh, a Christian friend of a Christian friend of mine. And I, I said, um, well, do you get any, any pushback or any tension at work because you're a Christian? He says, oh, no, it's not a problem. And I said, good, good, that's great. I said, so is there like a positive attitude towards you being a Christian? And he says, well, I don't tell him I'm a Christian. We need to make sure what our commitment is before we face a time. Weekly, I talk either in person or online with people who are afraid of losing their jobs because they're being asked to affirm or do something that's against their faith. Are we going to follow Jesus or not? That's our commitment. The second is a fancy word, catechesis. It means teaching, formation, forming in the faith. We've got to catechize. That means teach and form faithful foundations for people. We need to do this for our children, for our teenagers, for our young adults, for our middle-aged adults, for our senior citizens. We've got to do this. We've got to do this in the church. And we have to do this at home. I've been reading recently about, about uh, Christians who, who kept their family together behind the Iron Curtain. And one common theme is that every day the parents would ask their children, what did you learn at school today? Or I learned this about quadrilateral equations. Okay, that's cool. What else did you learn? I learned this about Dostoevsky. Oh, that's great. That's cool. What else did you learn? Oh, I learned that our bodies are all we are. We're just chemicals and all our emotions and beliefs are the results of chemical reactions. And they would say, that's a lie. It's true that chemicals affect the body, but you're more than just chemicals. You have a soul and you have a mind. Catechism needs to be done at home as well as the church. And then we have to build a strong community, a resilient community, so that when the crisis comes, we already have a community built. 
Sounds like a real downer of a conclusion to the sermon. It's a pretty downer of a text to work with. People don't understand the times they live in, but they're worked up over the weather. We see divisions. And we pray for peace. In Jesus' name, amen.